So, part two, Christmas risk, raising the risk. Christmas, as you know, is full of images that help us to feel comfortable. The warm glow of flickering candles, the soft focus of an oldie, worldly picture of nice children in Victorian dress, carol singing with their lanterns in hand. Christmas time, mistletoe and wine, children singing Christian. Shah, 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 shah. The kind of captures the mood of the season when as the nights are drawing in and the winds are, gale, are blowing a gale outside, we huddle together away from it all for a few days to lose ourselves in good food, gifts and trash TV. And, and all of us, all of us will appreciate to a greater or lesser extent, I suspect, some of those trappings of Christmas in these next ten days. And fine. But whatever kind of Christmas that is, it is a world away, maybe a universe away, from the kind of Christmas that we read about in the Bible. If our Christmas is warm and safe and secure, God's Christmas was harsh and real. God's Christmas, risky and raw, naked and bare and vulnerable and exposing and rough and dangerous and desperate. At the heart of Christmas lies not our comfort or our safety, not the security of old familiar things, or even the warmth of friends and family, but at the heart of Christmas lies a risk, an utterly outrageous, indescribable, extravagant, completely absurd kind of risk. The risk that God himself should come to earth. What greater risk has this world, this universe, ever seen than the creator choosing to become a creature? That the one who is outside of time choosing to confine himself to hours and minutes and days and weeks like the rest of us. What greater risk than the God who fills the whole of the universe shrinking down and down and down and down and down and down. And there in an animal shack, the one who did fill the heavens and the earth, confined, closeted, constrained to the womb of a teenage girl and then wrapped so tightly in swaddling cloth, he could hardly breathe. The God who filled all now down, confined, constrained. What risk to choose Bethlehem? Forget about our little town of Bethlehem. It wasn't a bit like that. It was a violent, bloody, restless outback. Violence rages so often in Bethlehem. You see it on the television screens. It has always been like that. It was like that in Jesus' day. What risk, Bethlehem? What risk, a, a cattle shed and not a castle? What risk to peasants and not princes? God now without rights, without power, without influence. And what a risk to become one of us. Can you imagine God becoming one of us? Can you imagine that actually happening? Would we like him or loathe him? If God actually became one of us, would we receive him or reject him? What if he came and we ignored him? What if we left him out in the cold? What if earth's kings couldn't make way for this heavenly king? 
What if the religious people thought they would have to tell God coming to earth all about the religious stuff? What if the religious people thought they needed to tell him about God and heaven and right and wrong? Imagine if he suffered the worst kind of things that human beings suffered. Imagine if his ethnicity made him hated from birth. Imagine if he was to speak with a a country accent so that whenever he opened his mouth in the big city, everyone kind of laughed and sniggered under his breath. Who's this uneducated country bumpkin? What if they mocked him or hurt him? What if God came? Imagine this. What if God came and someone actually tried to kill him? God would be mad to come, wouldn't he? To a world like ours. Insane. Several strings short of a harp or worse. If you were God and perished the thought, would you have come? Would you have come? Would you have taken the risk? The heart of Christmas is the most incredible risk that this universe has ever and will ever see. But why did he take it? Psychoanalysts writing at the beginning of the 20th century, the kind of guys that were inspired by Sigmund Freud and so on, concluded that it was just not normal for people to take risks. That risk-taking behaviour was in fact evidence of a diseased or diseased mind. They could not conceive of any reason why someone would choose to take a risk with their life. And as a result, concluded often that risk-takers were suicidal and mentally unstable, acting without reason. These guys, studying at the height of modernity, had forgotten that there was a stronger power in the world. A power more stronger than logic and reason. A stronger power than the instinct to survive. The power of love. God took the risk because of his love. His love that was just so passionate that heaven couldn't contain it. His love that burst out of heaven, roaring through the ages. His sacrificing love that is gritty and raw and real. His love that's epitomized in sacrifice. This love that could not be contained in that place. He so loved the world that he gave. I cannot think of anything any greater, anything greater in the whole of the universe than the risk God took except the love that he showed. This is how God showed his love. He sent, he took the risk, he came, his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. The only thing I think greater than his risk was his love. And because his love was greater than the risk, he took the risk and gave us his love. If he took the risk because of his love, that's not the whole story. He also took the risk because we were lost. In that uh, passage that Helen read to us some moments ago, Jesus reaching out to Zacchaeus, lost in his selfishness, his greed, his pride and his wealth. At the end of it, Jesus sums up this whole thing. The Son of Man came to seek 
and to save what was lost. Who's speaking? Jesus. He's speaking about Himself. And in eight words, He spells out why He came. What was lost? It wasn't next Saturday's tickets. It wasn't next week's English homework or car keys or wallets or stuff. It was people. People that were lost. People that were lost then and people that are lost now. And the Bible says quite simply that these people that are lost, they're without God and they're without hope. That's God's verdict on our world. It's not something the church conjures up. It's not something we need to make up to justify our existence. God says quite simply, this world without him is lost without hope. Have you ever been lost? Lost people don't know where they are. They don't always know where they are going, being, they don't know where they're heading. Lost people are tired and anxious. Lost people are fearful and prone to panic. Sound familiar? When he saw the crowds, he said, They're lost. They're helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Like boats with broken engines tossed around in the storms. Of life. Who am I? His love, our lostness, compelled him to take the greatest risk this universe has ever known. So at the heart of Christmas was a risk for God. But not just God. Because at the heart of Christmas is a risk that he called ordinary men and women to take to join him in this great mission to reach lost people. God's people took the risk as well. Think about Mary for a moment. She took a massive risk when she said yes to the angel. What if there had been no angel? What if she made it all up? Worse, what if he was an angel? What if she actually did become pregnant? With no way to explain, what would she say to her friends and to her family? The shame she would bring on her village. Would anyone believe her? No. Just another peasant girl lying, left out in the cold. What about Joseph? He's an unsung hero. He did the right thing, but at what personal cost? The risk of sticking by this seemingly promiscuous teenager. The risk of taking his young family to violent Bethlehem when there would be hordes of people there at that time. The risk of fleeing a bit later to Egypt. The risk of trying to find somewhere to stay. The risk of his firstborn baby being born out in the cold. Not to mention the risk that Mary and Joseph took together when they said yes will be first-time parents to God's Son. First-time parents are quite clueless. Fourth-time parents are quite clueless. Comes with the job. And you know something of the pain over the mistakes that you make being a parent. And if you haven't made any mistakes, you're blind or stupid or probably both. Because we make these dreadful mistakes with our kids because we're just practicing on them because we've never done it before. But imagine if this baby is not just your own, this baby was God's precious son. And there you are, floundering as parents, making all those mistakes you make with your kids, but this one's God's. The pain of screwing up your kids is one thing, but imagine messing about with God's son, the greatest risk God ever took. How did Mary feel the first time she tripped over that step and dropped him? How did Joseph feel when he left that chisel out on the bench and one of the brothers started poking around with it? 
How did they feel when they lost their temper with him? And they they caused him pain because of their mistakes. Folks, it was an incredible risk these young married couple took, don't you think? Saying, hey, we're going to look after this baby who's God's special baby. And what about when they lost him? They had one job, look after it, and lost him. For three hours? No, for three days. What did they pray every night? Sorry, God, we've lost your kid. Being asked to look after something is really stressful, especially when it's precious to somebody else, isn't it? I love the best men at weddings. They're far more stressed than the groom and the bride, usually. They have one little job, just look after the rings, how hard can that be? And they are paralysed by fear at losing these just two obvious little normal things that come from Argos most of the time. (laughs) Did I say that out loud? (laughs) So, So there you are, you watch them on the wedding day, they just picked up the suit... And they've been dreaming for weeks of the day. At the moment, I'm going to say, can I have the rings? And they're waking up in a cold sweat because they can't find them. They've got their posh suit from Moss Brothers and stuff. And they immediately look for what's the deepest pocket, the safest place to put these two rings. Usually the one up here. Tip for for best man. So they find the pocket, usually the one up here. And they get the lining out. And they make sure the lining's all stitched and firm and everything. And it's absolutely secure. And then they pop the two rings in. I watch. I guarantee... Within a few minutes, they're going, one, one, (gasps) two, 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 two. And so they check, and then just after they've checked, I go up to them and I say, hey, you got the rings? And even though they've checked the lining and they know it's secure, even though twice and just 20 seconds before, they've been putting their hand on the chair, and they know for certain those two rings are there, the moment I pop the question, they are full of (gasps) self-doubt. And I took my gown. It's a wonder Mary and Joseph ever slept, don't you? Baby Jesus in their care. A precious son of God. A priceless gift. God's risk beyond measure. Would you have said yes? Would you have, really, would you have taken the risk? At the heart of Christmas, these two newly wed young people took the risk to be part of God's mission to reach lost people. We haven't really got time to talk about the shepherds, but they took some risks too, didn't they? What if the angels were just kidding and they went down into Bethlehem? They would have been the butt of the jokes from Bethlehem to Babylon. Everyone knew shepherds were stupid. But more than that, shepherds weren't just understood to be stupid, that they were kind of uh, cheats and swindlers, certainly not welcome amongst the respectable and the religious. So if they went and the angels were lying, it was a huge risk. They would be mocked and the pain of mockery was real for them. They were always being mocked. Worse still, what if what the angel said was true and they wandered down to Bethlehem? Why would they, as cheating, swindling outcasts, ever be welcome where a holy child was born? They'd be laughed out of town. They took the risk. They went anyway. How brave was that? And even though shepherds couldn't give testimony in a law court because they weren't thought to be reliable, they still spoke about what they'd seen and heard. They took the risk and told it anyway. The wise men, we'll think about them on next Sunday night. In fact, everybody took great risks to be part of this story. They took great risks to join in with God's mission to reach lost people to save people that were far from God. Everybody, that is, except Herod and the religious types. And who wants to be like one of those? Any offers, Herod? No? All these people, and God the most, became part of what I'm calling for this series, 
the Christmas risk. The risk of leaving the safety and security of the world they knew to be part of what God was doing, reaching out beyond their world to save people that were lost. And nothing's changed, is it? God's love hasn't changed. Our lostness hasn't changed. And if these people took the risk, the question is, will you? Will you? God's still looking for people who will take the risks to join him in reaching a world beyond our own. Raise your hand if you think there's a fair chance that God is looking for people to take that kind of risk. It's a fair bet. Just, you, know, you don't have to be certain, just a fair, you know, fair wind. But it might just be possible that God... Who said put your hands down? You're like uneducated shepherds. <laughs> so will we? Will we? You can put your hands down now. Mine's hurting now. Will we raise the level of risk to reach lost people? If God took the risk to leave the sanctuary of heaven to come to this grubby, grotty, grabby planet Why can't I get across the street to reach my neighbour? And why can't I get across the office floor to my colleague? And why can't I get across the playground to the parent at school? Why? Because all too often I decide it's too risky. They might not welcome me. I might not be accepted. They might misunderstand me or worse think I'm strange. I decide the risk is too great, the rejection too real. I choose to play it safe. So I keep within my comfort zone. I keep safe with my own circle of friends, those that know me and those that I think understand my values and my vision. I go for minimum risk. I am risk adverse. And maybe, just maybe, my aversion to risk, my bias towards my own safety is less than honourable of a God who risked everything for me. I believe stronger than ever that God is asking us as a church to raise the level of risk we will take to reach people that are lost. If he crossed the universe, what risk will I take? What comfort zones will I break out of? What places will I go? What risks will I take? Let me ask you a question. Will you take the little wide invitation that you can get at the back, or you might have been given as you came in, that invite people to the services next week. Will you take that and invite someone this coming week? Most of us here are thinking, myself maybe included, I don't know if I can do that. It's too risky. It's too uncomfortable. It's pushing me out of my zone. But I have to say, the moment that you reach out a hand of friendship, the moment you reach out from your world to reach and invite somebody else, the moment that you leave your secure circle of friendship, of work and church, all those places where you feel safe, and reach outside of that, that moment, more than any moment, more than a thousand carol services, it's that moment that you best express the heart of Christmas. Because frankly, singing carols in our churches with candles is very lovely and will be a fantastic service next week. Don't miss it. 
But it's not what God was doing that first Christmas. It was risky and raw and vulnerable and painful and (gasps) taking his breath away as he watched his little baby being born into the world more helpless than any human father. At that moment, you reach beyond yourself. You take the risk. It's that moment more than any that we touch the heart of Christmas. We have to raise the level of risk. Behind every door in your street are people that God loves. Behind every door in this community are people, many of them, who are far from God. And we're being called to raise the level of risk to reach lost people. This building was never, ever conceived to fundamentally make us warm and comfortable and cosy. This building has always been about us intentionally raising the level of risk to reach lost people. And hey, in building it, we've learned a thing or two about risk, haven't we? And we've learned a thing or two about faith. When planning permission was refused, we prayed, and we took the risk to keep going, and we got a better building and planning permission for our trouble. When we didn't know how we could pay for it, we prayed and gave as sacrificially as we could and took the risk to go out to tender anyway. When the VAT ruling went against us and the financial gap between securing the deal and what we had was impossible. Humanly, it looked like that gap could never be reached. We prayed and we took the risk of going to the High Court to overturn a ruling on the VAT. And two working days before the case was due, just as the barristers were grooming their wigs, customs and excise overturned the ruling. And when the crunch came to start to build, we still didn't have enough money, so we prayed and took the risk of signing anyway for what we could afford. And within weeks of the timescale for our decision to complete the whole project, we prayed and we crunched the numbers, and we prayed and we crunched the numbers some more, and we did it again and again. And incredibly at that moment, we knew the only God-honoring response was to take the final risk and say, trust in God, let's do it, the whole thing. And there it is. Oh, okay, well, thank you, yeah. I thought for a moment I was going to have to ask you to think about what you might do if you were really excited, and then we'd replay that, and then you'd do it. But you you made a bit of an effort. Bless you for that. There it is. Risk, faith, prayer, risk, faith, prayer, and so it went on. God was faithful, wasn't he? At every moment. Even those times we thought, we're never going to make it. God was faithful. When we'd given up believing in God, he hadn't quite given up believing in us, mercifully. And God was faithful at every moment of the risk. And let me tell you something, God doesn't give a fig about a building. He doesn't give two hoots about bricks and mortar and rooms and stuff. God gives all his heart towards lost people. And if he rewarded our faith and our risk to build a building, it's because of his heart for lost people. Isn't it? Not because he wanted us to have a posh building. So what is this new building? What is this new building? Imagine that it's a ship. Is it a cruise liner? It's tempting to think it's like a cruise liner. 
A place where you can go, enjoy and relax. A place where you can indulge yourself, somewhat protected from the harsh reality of the world outside. And as you will see, it's open, it's warm, it's inviting, it's comfortable, it's safe and secure. And we must keep it that way, not primarily for ourselves, but for our guests. This is a building primarily for our guests. We've made it easy and comfortable, not for us. Hey, we don't need it to be easy and comfortable. We can sit on pews until our bums go numb. We don't need nice chairs. I've worked out there for 13 years where the ice is so real, it freezes on the front of my laptop. We don't need anything nice and cozy and warm. We're committed to Jesus anyway. This building is to make those people warm and welcome and comforting. You see, what happens when you know that you're going to have guests in your house? You get all your tat together and you shove it under the stairs, you shove it under the bed, you stick it in the cupboard. What was that? And why do you do that? Because you want to make a nice, warm, welcoming, relaxed, easygoing environment for your guests. If your guests weren't coming, you wouldn't have bothered. You're so used to your tat, you can't even see it anymore. Every day almost in our church up there and now down here, we welcome guests every single day. We must keep it ready. Guests alert all of the time. So no church tat. Have you heard me? Just in case you haven't heard, no church tat. Have I mentioned it? No church tat. If one morning I come in and there's a pile of church tat, the next person that comes in will find me in a corner in the pool of my own blood with a placard saying, please do not resuscitate. I'm over, finished, out of here. No church tat. And if you're not sure whether it's tat, it probably is. (laughs) I feel a lot better now. I got that off my chest. We keep it nice for our guests, don't we? So it's tempting to think it's like a cruise liner where we go and relax and indulge, and I hope we do, but that's not really what it's there for. It's not a cruise liner. Where the focus is the paid-up members enjoying themselves as we lock ourselves away from the harsh reality of life outside. If this boat is a building, friends, it's a rescue boat. It's a rescue boat with trained rescuers on board. A place where we send out rescue people and teams. We send rescuers out. A place where those being rescued are brought. Those who are fearful and vulnerable are welcomed and encouraged. And where every effort is made to help them connect with Jesus, the greatest rescuer this world has ever seen. So please, no cups and sauces your great-grandmother would be proud of. That suggests that Jesus is for another age, and maybe not our own. It suggests that maybe Jesus is as relevant as a horse-drawn carriage. No pictures of wrinkly dogs either, with, I love Jesus underneath. It makes Jesus about as useless as a cuddly toy. This is real life, isn't it? And a real Jesus. We want to present real life so that we can connect with real people because we believe we're connected to the real Jesus. And if we connect with real people and we're connected to the real Jesus, then the odds are that as we connect with them and we connect with him, we may help them connect with him. That sounds like a theme for a sermon series coming the new year. We've got to make these connections, which means it's got to be real in there. We've got to keep it real so we can make connections with real people in the real world. And we've got to keep very real about Jesus. The freedom 
champion, the rescuer. All those things we celebrated this year as he's been turning darkness into light. We've got to keep it real about Jesus. We've got to keep it real about this world in which we're living in. See, if you were drowning at sea, would you want a lighthouse keeper or would you want a lifeboat saver? Who would you want? We are not here to be lifeboat keepers, to keep the lights on as a kind of warning to people that walk by on London Road. It's very tempting if you go to the top floor, which you will in a little while, I hope, and stand with a glass railing. You can just wave to people passing by. They're great fun this week, just kind of waving to people, you know? But that's not what we're here for. We're not lighthouse keepers. We're lifeboat savers. And that's our base, isn't it? To be lifeboat savers. And in the months that lie ahead, we must work hard and together to turn that place into a fully equipped rescue centre. But what's the point in a fully kitted out rescue centre if no one's prepared to go out and be a lifesaver? Now is the time. Now is the time to raise the level of risk. The Christmas risk. Will you take that risk to leave the comfort of where you are to reach lost people for God? I'd like us to watch a film. It's about nine, ten minutes long. And it's a parable. The first boat that you'll see in the film is sinking. All the crew members are drowning at sea. They have no hope. In the area is a cruise liner that speaks of the way the church has so often been lost at sea. 